Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Futurists of the past dreamt of tapping into the heat of the Earth's mantle to supply our energy needs. But today's geothermal provides only a tiny fraction of the power we use. In today's episode, we'll be discussing what's next for geothermal, its possible advantages over solar and wind power, and the obstacles it faces. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Beard to answer those questions and more. Jamie is the founder and executive director of the Geothermal Entrepreneurship Organization at the University of Texas at Austin. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the engagement. Now, I'll admit that when I bring geothermal technology up to people, maybe because they've watched too many uh, History Channel shows or some such, they'll say, are you talking about drilling into super volcanoes? Because that sounds super dangerous. Uh, I don't think that's what you're talking about. So I wonder if we could just start off by describing, I guess as briefly as you can, what are sort of the suite, because it's not just one thing, but what are sort of the suite of technologies are we talking about when you're talking about geothermal? A lot of geothermal in the world that exists today is in fact near volcanoes. So people are used to that that idea, um, particularly in places like Iceland. Um, but there's also, you know, there's a lot of geothermal development in the United States um, where, where geothermal resources are close to the surface and have surface manifestations like in California. So there is that. That's, that's typically called hydrothermal geothermal. And it's been around for, you know, well more than 100 years in terms of, of producing energy and heat for humans to use. But that's not the only option for geothermal anymore. Um, you know, hydrothermal resources are are limited um, by their natural occurrence, and you know that's in limited places in the world. But you know, over the past couple of decades, we've had some pretty significant technological leaps, in particular in the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, shale boom being one. Um, directional drilling technologies and, and fracking technologies that came out of that, but also in offshore um, exploration and development. And so if you, if you take those technologies and you leverage them and you apply them to geothermal, we can actually um, enable all kinds of geothermal concepts now. And, and, and they, they go from engineered geothermal systems where you drill and you, and you fracture rock to produce these underground reservoirs. So these are essentially engineered systems where we are mimicking conditions like Iceland, for instance. So we don't have to just rely on what mother nature has given us. Exactly. You know, we're, we're engineering the subsurface to mimic that with the goal of being able to do that anywhere in the world that we need energy. So we've got the engineered systems that use fracturing technologies. And then we've got these, you know, newer concepts, advanced geothermal systems or closed loop systems, as some call them where fracturing is not used, um, directional drilling technologies are used instead. So you're essentially drilling radiators into, into rock and, and harvesting heat that way. And then there's all sorts of hybrids. So there's a lot of ways these two types of things are combined to create different systems as well. So you know a lot of innovation happening in this space and there's a lot new in the past couple of decades that have enabled 
um, some, some step changes forward. That's super interesting because I think if we were to ask most people about like what's been the big innovation, you know, in this country over the past generation, I think almost every single person might say, you know, the internet, but we tend to forget about oil and gas as far as this shale revolution and now how those technologies are being used to create something that frankly some people have been talking about, you know, for decades. I mean, if you go back and read what like the op, you know, the, the tech optimists from a half century ago, they would talk about nuclear fusion and things, but they'd also talk about tapping the very heat of the earth itself. And now we can kind of do that, right? Right. So, you know, and, and the oil and gas industry even has looked at geothermal over the years a lot. You know, it's, this is not a new thing, but, but what is new is that it used to be a moonshot. So, you know, before directional drilling and before fracturing technologies and before high pressure and temperature technologies and oil and gas were developed. And again, all of these are pretty new. They've happened in the you know, early 2000s and over the last decade. And so, you know, before those technologies existed, um, the, the idea that we could drill deep enough and somehow engineer rock to harvest geothermal anywhere in the world was sci-fi. It, it was a moonshot to say the least and oil and gas, um, you know, consistently kind of uh, punted, right? So it was like, well, that's just crazy. Um, and, and when it comes to hydrothermal, you know, it was just too niche for an industry like oil and gas that really it gets interested when there's, when there's scalability, when there's a, the ability to do something globally or in a really big, big way. So yeah, that's, that's what's really exciting about this is that these, um, you know, these new capabilities are actually enabled by technology leaps that have happened in oil and gas. So what are the particular advantages of this technology over both what we sort of already have um, and the next generation of, of nuclear? And there's been a lot in papers lately about nuclear fusion. Uh, we've all seen this big drop in prices for uh, you know, solar. So what, so what is sort of the, the compelling uh, case for geo, geothermal? Oh my gosh. Well, let's start. So for one, geothermal is, is baseload. So it's 24 seven, you don't need energy storage for geothermal, which is, that is a, that is a big deal, right? When you talk with utilities struggling right now with increasing intermittence on the grid, um, and you look at where energy storage is in terms of, of scalability for grid scale energy storage, having a, you know, a clean baseload source of energy um, in the very near term is, is an exciting prospect. Geothermal also has a tiny footprint compared to um, other renewables, right? So if you look at sources of, of clean energy like solar and wind, you know, geothermal, the geothermal footprint comparatively megawatt to megawatt is you know, about 1%. Of, of, of that of solar and wind, which again, that's a big deal in a, in, a, in a space constrained world, right? Particularly if you're wanting to put power plants near population centers where there are people and you don't have a lot of land, right? So you know, that's, that's another really exciting thing. Um, job creation. So geothermal per megawatt creates three or four times more jobs than other renewables do. Right. So that I think that's a really interesting concept. 
And, and what I've really grabbed onto, and you mentioned nuclear, you know, there, there are, um, you know, next gen nuclear concepts coming down the pike. We just did a podcast on nuclear fusion. Yeah, no doubt. It was, no it was doubt. very exciting. It was it's very exciting. exciting. It's exciting. But, but here's the deal. It's really expensive. I mean, you're, just to get it ready, we're talking about just massive investments of billions of dollars. And, you know, for geothermal to be ready for prime time, meaning we're getting teams into the field, getting technologies demonstrated, full scale, get oil and gas engaged and start scaling this thing, you know, drop in a bucket comparatively in terms of what's needed for investment. So, you know, talking about like maybe, maybe a half a billion dollars worth of field deployments might get us to a place for geothermal where we could, we could have a scalable concept ready to go and we'd be off on, you know, the, a, another shale boom, but this time for, for, for clean energy, right? And I think that's, that's really an interesting thing to think about, right? Is what, what's it going to take to get massive scale in terms of in dollars invested? And that's where geothermal, I think, really bests nuclear, but the thing that I'm really excited about, of course, and this is, this is you know, what my focus is right now, is the fact that we have an existing globally present industry with millions of highly trained um, individuals in the workforce that are perfectly suited to take geothermal to scale really, really fast. Um, and, and in doing that and in leveraging that workforce, and I'm, of course, I'm talking about the oil and gas industry, right. in, lev in, in leveraging that workforce to do this, we actually avoid a lot of the job losses and disruption that, you know, that, that's, that's kind of forecasted for the industry, right? We don't have to train, retrain geophysicists to install solar panels. You know, we can, we can let geophysicists do what geophysicists do best but for geothermal instead of hydrocarbons. So that's, that's what gets me really excited about geothermal is that we have such assets on the table here. You know, there's a Ferrari in the driveway, right? And it's just a matter of, of hopping in it and, and pressing, pressing the gas. Are, are there some technologies could only be used in certain places while there are other technologies you could use them anywhere? And perhaps even use them in places where, there's, where there are currently facilities, you know, there's been so much talk about, you know, sort of the, the decline of the coal regions. Could you, mm -hmm. since they already have coal plants there, could you just put them there? Just yeah. how, how, how do different technologies intersect with actually geography and where you would locate uh, power plants? Yeah, it's an awesome question. The, I think the, the low hanging fruit really is to figure out, um, you know, geothermal gradients within a hundred mile radius of all the world's population centers and really make it a goal to, to put geothermal developments near where we need the electricity, right? So we're not building massive um, grid infrastructure projects into the middle of nowhere. Um, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a low hanging fruit for geothermal. Um, there are, you know, geothermal concepts, some of them utilize fracking technology, some of them do not. And so there are going to be places in the world um, that aren't, aren't gonna like the fract-based concepts like EGS because they have frack bands in place, right? And, and they have some, some very um, significant public relations issues with even the word fracking. And it doesn't matter if it's for oil and gas or geothermal, it's fracking and fracking's bad, right? And 
a lot of this is, uh, is an educational challenge. A lot of this is a political challenge, but the reality of it is, um, are places that have significant opposition to fracking going to be the first to institute these, you know, engineered geothermal systems? No, they won't be, right? So there are gonna be some places where um, there's gonna need to be some, some political and educational um, strides before geothermal development of certain types will take off. That said, there are others, you know, like, like advanced geothermal or closed loop systems that don't utilize fractures. Um, and and they, may, they may be more realistic for places in the world that, that have that type of opposition. Um, you mentioned coal plants. It's an interesting concept and it's one that is, is gaining traction in places where coal plants are located um, in, in areas with high geothermal gradients, meaning that you don't have to drill super far to get really hot temperatures. And we may not be able to redevelop coal plants megawatt for megawatt or gigawatt to gigawatt. So in other words, if we redeveloped a coal plant into a geothermal plant, which would essentially mean that we would you know, drill a series of wells on the site of the coal plant. So they're big. I mean, you're, you're storing coal there. You've got you know, massive fly ash ponds. They're huge pieces of property, right? So we would repurpose the property, you know, drill a, a series of wells there and essentially use geothermal steam to drive the turbines, just as we use steam from burning coal, you know, and, and to, to drive the turbines. So it's the same, but you know, the, the question becomes, can you do that megawatt for megawatt? Would the plant still be exactly the same output with a geothermal um, angle as it would for coal? Um, and, and that's an area of inquiry right now. Um, it's really a matter of, how, how economically and, and can we drill to the depths we need to get the amount of heat we'd need? Um, and in some places, it's, it's more likely than others, right? So it would be more likely in the, in the West of the United States that it would be a possibility. Um, in Texas, in some places, there are coal plants located on really awesome shallow geothermal resources. Um, but it, for instance, in the Northeast, where geothermal resources are deeper and therefore the drilling would be much more expensive. Um, the prospect of doing that in the short term is lower, right? So just like everything, it, 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 right. the, the coal plant conversion is gonna be an incremental approach, right? Where you, you, you pick the plant that's sitting on the shallowest, hottest resources we can find and see what happens. Let's try it first, right? And, and go from there. But I, I think that's a really, cool concept. It's one that's not super close in time in terms of execution, but I think it's coming. It's coming within this decade, I think. So when it comes to fracking bans, are the activists worried about making climate change worse? Are they worried about groundwater contamination or earthquakes? What are their big concerns? There are some, um, there is some regulation in place that actually does make an exception for geothermal projects, right? So, so it depends on where you are and what the, con uh, for what the concern is. In Europe, you know, seismicity is certainly on, on the public's mind and seismicity is, um, is something in geothermal that we have to be very careful about. Are those earthquakes? Is that what that means? Yeah, yeah, induced seismicity, I mean, man-made earthquakes, essentially. Um, that's another, uh, that's another area, though, where the oil and gas industry could bring just an amazing wealth of knowledge and standardization 
because the oil and gas industry has been through this um, with their learnings in hydraulic fracturing and, and wastewater injection um, in Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, these, these things are actually in, in the news now because they are you know, induced seismicity, meaning, and typically in, in this context, in the oil and gas context, um, you know, the, the seismicity that is, is, is resulting from fracturing operations or wastewater, um, wastewater disposal is actually not, um, it's not enough for humans to, to notice it, right? It's, it's, it's not something that we would feel necessarily, um, though sometimes it is, but, but the oil and gas industry monitors it nonetheless. And it's something that we need to be, you know, very, we need to pay a lot of attention to as geothermal development um, scales and, and, and goes global, right? Because we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be producing man-made earthquakes with our power plants, right? So um, I think this is an eyes wide open moment in terms of, of you know, translating oil and gas knowledge from, from fracking um, into geothermal to make sure that we're not having events like that. And certainly in Europe, they have had some. They, and that's why it's in the public consciousness. They've had some man-made earthquakes that were caused by geothermal projects um, that, had, that, you know, that ca have caused property damage. Um, and it's not just Europe, it's also um, Asia as well. It's happened in Korea, South Korea as well. So what do you tell people who are also concerned about the climate, but they're worried about earthquakes and other things? Is it like, there's no perfect technology, but what do you, you know, what are you more concerned about? I mean, how, how do you begin to make that case? Yeah. So, you know, I think my personal views on this actually, um, you know, offend many of my friends, uh, you know, my climate um, activist friends, because I, I, I don't like hypocrisy. And um, I think we need to have eyes wide open when it comes to you know, the supply chains that we're leaning on um, for renewable energy investment and development. And in particular, when it comes to lithium mining and energy storage, um, I don't think that the world understands the impact and what that's going to mean if we, if we mine as much as we need to mine over the next two decades to meet current climate goals, um, just in terms of energy storage. Not, not to mention rare earths that are needed to develop solar, solar and wind. So, you know, eyes wide open on, on supply chains. And, and when I look, step back and look at our choices in terms of, of clean energy technologies, um, would I rather risk mitigate seismicity um, and do that in a measured standardized way than, you know, um, mine a ton of lithium and rare earths, yeah, I would rather do that because I think it's a, a manageable risk that has less impact on the environment, right? So, um, you know, I think it's, it's really worth thinking about those things as we make investments and, and having eyes wide open on, you know, what the real impacts are of the various energy sources that we're, that we're investing in. And speaking of energy, so where is sort of the private sector energy coming from? Is it from big established oil players whose names we've all heard of? Is it scrappy startups? Where, where's, who's doing this right now? Well, um, the, it, right now it's startups that are making a lot of noise. Um, the interesting thing about that is many of the startups that are out there doing projects are 
um, are led by oil and gas industry veterans. So folks that have left industry or had retired from industry, but then got excited about this and jumped in and started companies. So you've got, you know, former chief scientists of Shell and, you know, executives from BP. And I mean, you, you name it, they're, every oil and gas entity is now represented by a veteran that started a geothermal company. And I think that's really cool. Like that's something that I think really says something about this movement. Very, very interesting. And of course, those teams have really hit the ground running because they've spent their entire lives, um, you know, exploring for, drilling for, and producing subsurface energy. It just happened to be hydrocarbons and not geothermal. So they know what they're doing. They get on the ground and they start, they go drill. Um, that's really great. Um, but it's not just startups. It's becoming now also, um, you know, major multinational oil and gas companies that are engaging, but they're all doing it in different ways. And they're, you know, some are more slow than others. Certainly the oil service sector has, has hit the ground running on this because they have a lot to gain. You know, these, these are the guys that, that go out and drill the projects and, you know, that have a lot of workforce and assets and technologies that will apply here. So over the past maybe 18 months, they, you know, several of them have done, you know, full sweep internal, you know, investigations of where their strengths are here. And they've hung up shingle, geothermal shingles, right? So you go to Baker Hughes website now, and they've got a geothermal program. You know, they've got, they've got you know, they've hung a geothermal shingle. And I think that's, it's new and it's cool. Most oil and gas entities now have titled geothermal people, teams, leaders, management, executives, that's new, right? Um, the, so that's, that's exciting. And there are also oil and gas teams, meaning oil and gas entities who have, you know, one in particular that, um, that self-funded a, a field trial and just had a, a breakthrough outcome that is, that is not yet public, but soon will be you know, in a six month turnaround. So designed a tool, got it into the field, self-funded a field trial and knocked it out of the park, like world record in terms of hard rock geothermal drilling, um, you know, in six months. And I think that is a beautiful illustration of what happens when, you know, oil and gas brains and oil and gas entities start engaging in this problem set. The problems just get solved. It's pretty, pretty awesome. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that over the next couple of years. But uh, what are they waiting to see? Are they just waiting to see what happens with these startups and they'll swoop in, they'll buy all of them? Sort of what does all in look like and what are what are we waiting for for that to happen? Yeah, so um, some of them have taken the approach that they're going to invest in a, you know, a couple of startups that they like and um, and see what happens. I think from the big oil perspective, like the operator perspective, Chevron, Shell, Total, Exxon, et cetera, BP, these entities do not typically go out and pioneer things like this. They, um, they instead make investments and they, and they wait, right, to see what happens. So an employee from, from one, one of the big you know, international oil companies recently at a conference said, you know, we're waiting for our geothermal George Mitchell, right? And as soon as that that entity proves a scalable concept in the field, there will be a, a pile on. And I, I think that is definitely true. For, for the listeners, who's George Mitchell? Ah, so, so George Mitchell is the, is the wildcatter that got out into the field and figured out, uh, 
fracking and kicked off the shale boom. Yeah. So, um, and there are a lot of parallels um, between that kind of wildcatter culture and geothermal. We're seeing that now with these startups that are oil and gas veterans that are out there trying these new concepts and seeing how to best harvest heat. It really does have a lot of parallels with how the shale boom kicked off. And so, you know, we could very easily get on that exponential growth curve that shale did, which took the entire world by surprise. And this does not have to. Right. Within the next you know, two years, we could very easily get on that curve and have a pile on just like we did with shale um, when the geothermal George Mitchell shows up. Right. And it's my gut that the geothermal George Mitchell is already in the field. But it's just a matter of waiting for data at this point. So so it's really exciting. So, yeah, some companies have made some bets in startups and they're waiting to see, you know, what pans out. But I would say, you know, in, in my ideal world, um, you know, I kind of wish big oil um, from the top down, because it's been really grassroots in, in big operators, the geothermal um, interest. And, you know, I wish there was a more top down approach where because they, they have everything they need to figure this out, really, and do this internally. And I kind of wish there was a, you know, CEO or two out there that said, hey, troops, you know, I want to hear from you about how we make this happen. Failure is not an option. And, you know, I want to see something deployed in the next 18 months. I want the best ideas. Go, right? If that happened, a top-down approach in, in, you know, some of the biggest oil companies in the world, it's my guess that geothermal, you know, most geothermal challenges would be nipped in very you know, short order. Well, what kind of role can geothermal uh, play given sort of the technologies people are working on right now? And just what's your best shot there? Right. Well, I mean, I am the outlier in this um, pretty much globally, I think, at this point where I'm willing to go all in because I think it's worth it to say. And I've, I've listened to enough people, particularly in oil and gas, to say that if we did geothermal at oil and gas scale, it would solve energy and meet world energy demand by 2050. Right. So, I mean, and I'll, I'll hard stop on that. Um, are there people willing to lockstep me on that yet? Nope, not yet, not publicly. But in a couple of years, will there be? Yep, I'm pretty sure there will, right? So, you know, I, I, I do agree that we need a mix and we all, yes, yes, all that stuff, yes. But, you know, geothermal has been this vastly underestimated resource that has a, um, a very well-suited industry to scale it quickly and we're in a really unique position there where things could get really big really fast. Does this sector, does it need more government research? Does it need deregulation if you're going to be drilling on public land? Is, do, do you ever hear those kinds of issues raised like, or are they ready to go? Or they have what they need? The research has been done. We just need to sort of keep developing these technologies in the private sector. Does government need to do anything here that you've been made aware of that, or that people talk about? Yeah, I think there's two major opportunities. And, you know, policy is one and, and I, you know, policy makes my skin crawl because um, I'm trying to get teams funded and into the field. Like we need demonstrations. And when you start talking about policy and regulatory barriers, funders literally, you know, leave the room. They don't want to hear about it. It's slow, forget it. This is not now. And so, you know, um, and, you know, because most of the low hanging fruit, at least in the United States for geothermal development is on federal land. 
Um, and it's currently harder to develop a geothermal project on federal land than it is an oil and gas project, right? So we have some serious issues um, on federal land for geothermal development. One of them is that um, geothermal development is subject to, um, you know, uh, NEPA. And, and it's, it does not have a categorical exclusion like oil and gas development does. And that is, um, that is a direct result of the geothermal industry not having a lobby. It's just a ridiculous situation in terms of, of the ability to develop projects on federal land. Let's fix that. That's ridiculous. We've got to fix that. But, you know, a way around that is, well, we just need to aim for private and state land for now. And let's just build enough momentum here and have enough success that the federal piece will move eventually, but let's not wait for it, right? Because we, we can be doing things now. And that's why, quite frankly, there's a lot of um, ongoing demonstrations and interest in geothermal in Texas, because, um, you know, you've got a lot, a lot of private and state land there that, you know, where development can happen quickly. So that's one thing, you know, um, making some, some policy adjustments that would really um, unleash a lot of development that are just frankly silly, but also slow. And, you know, what we really need is the oil and gas industry to start lobbying for geothermal. I'll just say it, right? I mean, if the oil and gas industry did that, um, many of these problems would be uh, near instantly solved. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing, when it, when it comes to investment, um, should the government, government invest more money in geothermal? Of course! You know, geothermal has, has been under-resourced forever. It has never um, enjoyed the subsidy or appropriations that any other energy source has gotten specifically in the renewables um, by, by orders of magnitude. But considering the fact that it really doesn't need very much to get it off the ground, and I don't mean research. I'm not sure we should be dumping a lot of dollars right now into lab-based research. It would be helpful to do some. But the high-impact stuff right now for geothermal is funding teams into the field. We need demonstrations. We need to start, we need to stop like tweeting about it. We need to stop talking about it. We need to start doing it. You know, will the first couple of projects be perfectly successful? Probably not, but they'll be iterated. And this is also another way that the oil and gas industry could be immediately engaged, right? Is to, to you know, build teams and deploy them into the field to build projects. And I think that's what, um, you know, that's the area where, you know, there could be really high impact in terms of dollars, um, not necessarily in the lab, but in the field. If we brought you back 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what will have went wrong if none of this happened? Would it be you were quashed by regulation? The technology didn't work. What will have gone wrong? In my view, I think we have a, a, a narrow window to get oil and gas excited about doing this. And if we miss that window and oil and gas decides to pivot into solar and wind and hydrogen, and, you know, and, and, and doesn't really pay much attention to geothermal, geothermal is never going to scale fast enough to be competitive with solar and wind. And so, and, and it will always be behind. And so it will be irrelevant eventually. And so in my view, the only way to, to catch up and scale this fast enough is getting the oil and gas industry engaged and excited. And if that doesn't happen soon, it doesn't matter if it ever happens, it'll never happen, right? And so, you know, that's my urgency is to not only engage with oil and gas about it, but also try to get them and 
you know, into the field doing projects so they can get, you know, excited internally about doing it, not just invest in startups on the side and watch, but actually get into the field and get some learning. So I, I view, I viewed failure as failure to attract the perfect suitor to scale this industry um, in time to make it happen. My guest today has been Jamie Beard. Jamie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Jim. It's been fun. 